I'd like to invite your attention this morning to the book of Genesis, chapter 5. Genesis, chapter 5. As we continue our sermon series through the book of Genesis, I'd remind you that last week, in considering Genesis chapter 4, we were introduced to the genealogy of Adam that is traced through his son Cain. And this was the line of humanity that was marked by evil and rebellion, finding their fulfillment and joy and purposes in the things of the world. And this line culminated in Lamech, seventh from Adam, the first polygamist and a man marked by violence. And yet at the end of chapter 4, we were introduced to another son of Adam, Seth. And it is his genealogy that we will find in Genesis chapter 5. But it was through Seth that a people began to call on the name of the Lord. And it was through Seth that God would send the promised deliverer, the seed of the woman, the offspring who would crush the head of the serpent that was promised in Genesis 3.15. And so as we come to Genesis 5 and to this genealogy, we will once again find that this genealogy is not merely historical record, though it is, but more than historical record, it is a record of God's faithfulness and of God's providence down through the ages to preserve a people for himself that call upon his name. And so if you have found your place to Genesis chapter 5, I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Beginning in verse 1, the word of God says, This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness according to his image and named him Seth. Adam lived 800 years after he fathered Seth and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Adam's life lasted 930 years, then he died. Seth was 105 years old when he fathered Enosh. Seth lived 807 years after he fathered Enosh, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Seth's life lasted 912 years, then he died. Enosh was 90 years old when he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived 815 years after he fathered Kenan, and he fathered other sons and daughters, So Enosh's life lasted 905 years, then he died. Kenan was 70 years old when he fathered Mahalelel. Kenan lived 840 years after he fathered Mahalelel, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Kenan's life lasted 910 years, then he died. Mahalelel was 65 years old when he fathered Jared. Mahalelel lived 830 years after he fathered Jared, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Mahalelel's life lasted 895 years, then he died. Jared was 162 years old when he fathered Enoch. Jared lived 800 years after he fathered Enoch, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Jared's life lasted 962 years, then he died. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was not there because God took him. Methuselah was at 187 years old when he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived 782 years after he fathered Lamech and he fathered other sons and daughters. 
So Methuselah's life lasted 969 years, then he died. Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son, and he named him Noah, saying, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord cursed. Lamech lived 595 years after he fathered Noah, and he fathered other sons and daughters. So Lamech's life lasted 777 years, then he died. Noah was 500 years old, and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. Well, as we come to this fifth chapter of Genesis and to this genealogy, we might, as we wondered last week, and as we might wonder any time we come across a genealogy in our scripture reading, what is the purpose of this genealogy? There is obviously difficulty in even pronouncing the names. Chris and I made that both apparent as we read this morning. Uh, but beyond that, we might look at these genealogies and see them as irrelevant or hard to apply. They may seem less interesting or less than important, particularly here in Genesis 5, as we've just covered God's creation of the heavens and the earth out of nothing. We've considered the fall of man into sin. In, in the next few weeks, we're going to consider the existence of, of the Nephilim in the world. We're going to consider the flood and even the Tower of Babel. There's all of these amazing stories in the Bible that are very interesting and hold our attention well. And then right in the middle of this, we have a genealogy. However, this genealogy is not just filler space because Moses had a, had a word count that he was trying to hit in pinning the book of Genesis, nor is this genealogy just historical record for the sake of record keeping. No, God is speaking to his people through this genealogy. The fact that it is included right in the middle of the fall and in the middle of the flood indicates to us that we should give careful attention to what God communicates to us through this genealogy. You see, the effects of the curse and the fall are readily apparent in humanity. They are impacting humanity in this tremendous way. We've seen in chapter 4, right after the fall, that the humanity after the fall is marked by rebellion against God, murder, satisfaction in the things of the world, rebellion against God's design for marriage, and arrogance and violence. We see in Genesis 5 that the effects of sin are most fully realized in that even in the godly line of Seth, each of their lives ends with the refrain, and then he died. And so the promise that God made to, uh, to Adam in the giving of the covenant of works, that on the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die, has surely come to pass upon Adam and all of his offspring. We all observe and experience the effects of the fall in the world that we live just as the members of this genealogy that we have read this morning. And yet, in spite of that, in spite of the effects of the fall that are impacting humanity both then and now, God is preserving a people for himself, a godly line that calls upon the name of the Lord. There is and always will be the promised seed of the woman. There will be a people who call on the name of the Lord. There will be a godly line traced through Seth in contrast to the spiritual line of wicked Cain. And so we read in this genealogy and we take comfort in knowing that God is preserving a people 
for himself. And while there is no significant narrative in this chapter about the heroes of the faith, such as Adam or Noah or Abraham or Joseph, we recognize that God is providentially sustaining the godly line generation after generation. And just as we saw last week the marks of the line of Cain and their worldliness, so we see in this line the marks of the godly in the line of Seth. And as such, these ought to be marks of our lives as well. And so as we consider this genealogy of Genesis chapter 5, there are three things that I want us to consider together this morning. And, and the first mark of the godly line is that the godly display the image of God. The godly display the image of God. Look with me again at the first three verses. It says, This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. And Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness according to his image and named him Seth. And so we read that this is the written account of the line of Adam that is traced through Seth. And with these words in verse 1, we are introduced now to a new section of Genesis. We made note of several weeks back in the beginning of our study in Genesis that Genesis is marked off by 10 big sections. While we might have 50 chapters in our English Bibles, there are 10 sections as they are given to us by Moses as he authored the book of generations and each of them is marked off by this phrase the generations of so and so whether it's Adam or whether it's Noah and on down the line and so in that as we are introduced to this new line and this new record of what is happening in the offspring of Adam we are introduced to the godly line of the seed of the woman that is traced through Seth. And it's through these genealogies uh, that Genesis is careful to maintain distinction between the seed of the woman, that is the people of God, and the seed of the serpent, that is the people of the world. And through this genealogy, we see that Adam's legacy, the, the mark of his life, is that he passed down a spiritual heritage to his offspring. He hands down that which was given to him. He imparts it to those after him. He passes it down to his descendants. And so while we recognize that Adam did many things, his true spiritual legacy is seen in the people to whom he passed on faith in the Lord. We know Adam as the man who brought sin into the world. We know Adam as the man who brought a curse upon humanity. We know Adam as the one who is the reason that we're exiled out of the presence of God in the garden. And yet it is through Adam that the seed of the woman is known to be the line of faith. Adam remarks his faith in Genesis chapter 3 when he names his wife Eve the mother of all living. He is believing and hoping in the promises of God. He names his son Seth that he has been appointed by God. And so he is trusting in God and he passes that down generation after generation. This is seen most clearly in the passing of the image of God down, naturally speaking, by virtue of birth. You see, God made man in the image of God. He made Adam in his own image. And we studied that section in Genesis 1 several weeks ago now, but we saw there that 
that God made Adam in his image, in his whole being, both soul and body. He is made in the image of God. God gave him rational faculties to know God and to believe in God and to worship God. He gave man moral faculties to know right and wrong, to know good and evil. He made man a spiritual being so that he may worship and relate to God who is spirit and worship him in spirit and in truth. He made man a relational being so that he might relate to God and then to other image bearers and glorify God in those relationships. And so through this image of God, we see that Adam now bears a son in his image. But the image of God was distorted in the fall. God makes man perfectly in his image that he might mirror his character and reflect his goodness and reflect his character before all creation. But the image of God is distorted in the fall. It is not lost. We see that here. It's passed down to Seth. But it's distorted, tarnished, marred, broken. John Calvin refers to the image after the fall as deformed, mutilated, maimed, disease-ridden, and disfigured. And yet it is not lost. When we came to the section of Genesis 1 discussing the image of God, I used the analogy of a broken mirror. You can still see your reflection, though it's distorted. As you look in this broken mirror, you can see yourself, and yet it's distorted, and it's marred, and it's tarnished. There's resemblance to your likeness, but it is not the exact correlation. And so Adam, after the fall, has the distorted image of God in himself, and yet that image remains. But it is that distorted image that he passes on to his son. That's why it says that he, gave, he bore a son in his likeness. God made him in the image of God, and now Adam, having fallen and bearing the distorted image of God, now passes that distorted image on to his son. While Adam was made in the likeness of God, created without sin, knowing only good and not evil, but through Adam, sin came into the world, and Seth, as well as all of his posterity, are now affected by original sin. The image of God was tarnished and diminished, and that is the image that is passed on to Seth. And so while this might seem like bad news, this is actually good news for us that God is preserving His image and His people, that they may know His character, that they may be able to relate to Him, that they may know morals, good and evil, that they may be, have that changed, that they may worship God rightly. The image of God still remains in man and it is passed down to his offspring, Seth. And, and, and though the image of God is distorted, God is working in His people by His grace to renew and restore that image in them. That's what the godly line does is they call upon the Lord. They seek to worship God and have His image renewed in Him. They exercise their capacity to know God and glorify God and call upon His name. That means the good news for us, brothers and sisters, is those of us who are in Christ are having the image of God renewed in us through Christ, who, as we have just sang about, is the better Adam. And though in Adam the 
image of God was tarnished and marred and distorted. It is renewed and restored in Christ Jesus, who is the perfect image of God. Hebrews 1 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall we bear the image of the man of heaven. God is at work in His people who call upon the name of the Lord to restore and renew that distorted and tarnished image in us. It is written in Ephesians 4 that this is not how we came to know Christ, assuming you heard about Him and were taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of truth. God's work in us by salvation is to sanctify us, conforming us more and more into the image of His dear Son. We who bear the image of Adam, distorted by the fall, are being renewed into the image and likeness of our Creator in truth and righteousness according to the image of Christ, who is the express imprint of God's nature. And as God works that image in us, brothers and sisters, that is what we can pass on to the next generations. Like Adam, though fallen, we can leave a legacy of faith that we pass on to the next generations as God works that grace into our souls and into our lives. Brothers and sisters, it matters not as much what you leave to your children physically or naturally, but it matters the legacy that you live spiritually. Certainly, Proverbs says that a wise man leaves an inheritance for his children. Oh, but how much wiser it is for us to leave a legacy of faith for our children that generations from now we would be known as men and women of faith who taught our children the words of God as Adam taught his children. The godly display the image of God. But the second thing that I want us to see this morning is that the godly walk with God. You see, as we read generation after generation as of men living and dying and in this line of Seth, we come to the seventh from Adam. His name is Enoch. And we read there in verse 19 that Jared lived 800 and, uh, excuse me, let's go, bump on down to verse 21. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was not there because God took him. And so much like we saw last week in the genealogy of, uh, of Cain, in, in the line of Cain, the seventh generation, uh, there's emphasis placed on this seventh generation because just as Lamech was representative of the, uh, of the line of Cain and that he was the first polygamist and that he was a man of, of iniquity and of arrogance and of violence, so the seventh from Adam and the line of Seth represents the entirety of the line of Seth. And Enoch is said to be a man who walks with God. Now this is even written twice for us. In fact, so little do we know about Enoch. But it is important to note that it is said twice just here in these few verses that Enoch was a man who walked with God. That's what he was known for. 
Now, that certainly doesn't mean that he did so perfectly. We've been studying on Wednesday nights about a man named Job, and Job is called a righteous man, but that doesn't mean that he was a perfectly righteous man. In fact, we've seen throughout the book of Job that there is much iniquity in the heart of Job, and there's a distrust of God, and he's concerned about his own situation, and he calls into question the providence of God. But... Nonetheless, Job is a man who is marked by righteousness, and so it is with Enoch. He is a man who is marked by walking with God. He is communing with God. This is his manner of life. But the question then comes to our mind, what does it mean to walk with God? What does that really look like? Does that mean walking side by side, holding hands with God? No, I don't think that's what it means. Thankfully, like we had in... um, like we've had before in the book of Genesis, we have divine commentary on what it means to walk with God. The author of Hebrews picks up on the life of Enoch in Hebrews chapter 11, and he says there that it's by faith Enoch was taken away. And so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now without faith it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so part of what it means to walk with God is to live a life of faith. It is to walk with God by faith. It is to draw near to God believing that he exists and is one who rewards those who diligently seek him. Enoch is a man who is trusting in God's promise promises. And although he does not have much revelation from God, he doesn't have the entirety of God's word before him. What he does have is a promise of God that there will be hostility between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, and that he will crush his head and he will bruise his heel. And Adam, excuse me, Enoch holds on to that promise and he walks by faith, trusting in God's promises, believing in God and believing in his goodness. And he, in this, he is seeking to please God, delighting in God and delighting in his presence. He communed with God by faith. And like his forefathers before him, he calls upon the name of the Lord, trusting in him, believing in him. And because of his faith in God, he is also a man who walks in obedience. To walk with God means to walk in obedience. Think about it. If you're to walk with someone, that means you share the same goals and the same priorities. It means you're headed in the same direction. Now, God certainly isn't going to walk the way of Enoch no more than he's going to walk the way of Cain. No, God has trailblazed the path and Enoch has said in his heart that he is going to walk in obedience, following God and walking with God. He is determined to go in the ways of God in obeying his word and obeying his law. He has rejected temptation to sin. He's denying himself and the lusts of the flesh and he is finding his chief satisfaction in God alone. And so Enoch lives a life of faith and obedience, maintaining close fellowship with God. And his manner of life is directed towards God. Everything that Enoch is and everything that Enoch does is directed towards God as he walks with God. But I would highlight for you again, dear Christian, that Enoch walks with God before his children. Let's read it there again in verse 20. 
21, Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. As his forefather Adam, who passed on a legacy of faith, so we see Enoch walking with God before his children and modeling godliness for them. There's only a handful of things that we know about Enoch in the scriptures. We know that he walked with God. We know that he did not experience death. We're going to see that in a few moments. And we know that he fathered Methuselah, who fathered Lamech, who fathered Noah. And so he passed on this legacy of faith, generation after generation, walking with God before his children so that they may learn to walk with God too. Before Enoch is taken up to heaven, he leaves a legacy of faith behind for his children and for his grandchildren. But I would have you note that Enoch's life is not just a life of silence as he walks before the Lord. No, Enoch is a man who is verbal about his faith in Christ. Again, we have divine commentary on the life of Enoch in the book of Jude. In Jude, it says it was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, Look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. And Jude's divine commentary uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on the life of Enoch is that he was not just a man of actions walking with God, but he was a man of words speaking condemnation, speaking God's judgment upon those who were living lives of wickedness. Enoch is walking and living before God in an age of wickedness. We're going to read more about that next week as the sons of God are coming to the daughters of men and having children and uh, the inclinations of the human heart is evil continually. Continuously, We've seen it already in the line of Cain as Cain murders his brother, leaves the presence of God, and fathers many children, one of which will be Lamech, who rebels completely against God and his word. Enoch is surrounded by godlessness. And yet he denounces the ways of the ungodly. He doesn't merely live a righteous life before the world, but he speaks against sin and speaks against ungodliness. And so he did this by manner of his life in walking with God, but his conversation coincided with his walk. He speaks actively against evil, pronouncing God's judgment upon sin, attesting to God's judgment upon the wicked. And after doing all of this, after walking with God 300 years, it says he is taken up to God. Everyone else in this genealogy dies. Generation after generation, beginning with Adam, are met with these solemn words, then he died. And though they lived extraordinarily long lives because the atmosphere and the environment in which they lived were different than the one in which we find today and sin had yet to cause the tremendous impact and effects of the, in the human body uh, of shortening human lives as we experience it today, nor has God yet promised as he will after the flood that human life will only last for about 120 years. All of these things gave them long life by God's blessing. And although they lived this long life, they were still met with death. 
One author says this genealogy reflects mankind's condition after the fall. They are mortal and they die. But Enoch is different. Enoch is the exception. God took Enoch body and soul without his experiencing death as we know it. Enoch did not know the sting of death as every other human save Elijah has known. By taking Enoch in this way, God is showing to all the patriarchs that there is hope in life after death. He is showing to them that though Adam's fall has brought a real curse upon them and that there is death to be experienced, there is still hope in life after this death. One author notes, one of the principal purposes of God's action with regard to Enoch was a demonstration to the antediluvians, that is the people before the flood, that life continues beyond this world. An eternal glory with God for the righteous seed. As Cole states, in writing of Enoch's life, Moses' aim was to communicate hope. Death is not the final answer. For Enoch, God overruled death. And so in taking Enoch and sparing him from death, calling him up into heaven, God is showing his power over death, that he can deliver his people, the seed of the woman, the line of Seth, that they will finally and ultimately be delivered from the sting of death and the power of death over them. And so, dear Christian, as we think about the life of Enoch, there are a few things that we should take away. And first is that we walk by God, walk with God by faith in Christ, who is the better Enoch. We walk with God by faith in Christ, who is the better Enoch. Enoch walked with God. He was a man of faith. But there is one who walked with God in a greater way and in a perfect way before him. There is a man who lived without sin, knowing God and relating to God and walking so nearly with God because he was God himself in the flesh. And he come into humanity as we read in the line of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. He is who is the Son of God, is the descendant of all of these men and came in the flesh in humanity for us and walked with God. And in walking with God, he stores up a wealth of righteousness for you and I that is imputed to us on the cross of Calvary. And it is out of that position of righteousness that we too are called to walk with God. The New Testament calls every single believer to walk with God. It's not just Enoch who walked with God. Remember, he is the epitome of the line of Seth. He is the highlight of the line of Seth, and he represents all of them. It's not just Enoch, but it's Seth and Enosh and Mahalelo and all of them all down the line who are walking with God. So it is with every believer that we must be marked by walking with God. As Enoch represents the whole line of Seth, so he models for us the need for us to walk with God by faith in Christ Jesus. Thus it is written in Colossians, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in Him, being rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and overflowing with gratitude. Oh, dear Christian, like Enoch, we must look to Christ, our example, and be imitators of Him as we walk with God. We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk in obedience, seeking to sacrifice our own desires and preferences in order to walk the way of God. We walk the way of God when it's the difficult path against the easy path. We follow God in all that we do. 
And we walk with God before our children, modeling holiness for them so that they may know what it means to obey God and to live for God. We make God's word our rule and we make God's glory our end. We walk with God in faith in Christ, submitting to him in everything that we do. Like Enoch, we walk with God by faith in Christ, the better Enoch. And that faith and that walk that we have includes the hope of eternal life that is secured only in Christ. You see, as Enoch did not taste the sting of death, there is one who tasted the sting of death for every man that we might have eternal life with him. And although we die just like everyone else in the line of Seth, we have hope of victory over death by faith in Christ we are delivered from the grips and pains of death the author of Hebrews writes but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace he might taste death for every one and he goes on to write now since the children of flesh and blood and have this in common Jesus also shared in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death that is the devil and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death dear Christian we have hope of eternal life and we have hope of power over death because Christ has secured it for us just as Enoch did not taste the sting of death so there is no longer a sting in death because Christ has removed the sting for us and he will raise us up on the last day. This is our hope of eternal life. This is why we walk with God in this present evil age as Enoch did. The godly walk with him. But There is one third thing that I want us to see in this passage is that the godly hope that God will deliver them from the effects of sin. The godly hope that God will deliver them from the effects of sin. You see, we, we read as on into verse 25 down through verse 32, we read of this man named Lamech. In verse 28 it says, Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son, and he named him Noah, saying, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord had cursed. And so already we've seen the dramatic effects of the fall, the dramatic effects of the curse of God. We've seen that in childbearing. We've seen that in the iniquity perpetuated by Cain. We've seen that in the ground being cursed and work being cursed. The, the curse has affected every aspect and every facet of human life. And this man, Lamech, mourns that. And he cries out, hoping that God will someday send relief from the effects of the fall. And it's the godly line that hopes that God will send one to bring relief from the effects of the fall. You see, Lamech had a son and he named him Noah. And that name Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for relief or for rest. And so he demonstrates for us in naming his son, he demonstrates hope that one day the existing misery and corruption of this present evil age and life on earth will come to an end. And, and so this name anticipates, of course, the work of Noah that he will do in building the ark and, and that God will use him as a righteous man to preserve the line of humanity and the covenant of works will be given again to Noah, though he will fall himself. We, we see that Noah is the culmination of this line of Seth as we anticipate the flood that is coming over the next few weeks. But Noah is not the one who brings relief to mankind. 
Though he will build an ark. Though he will deliver humanity in this ark. Though he will be used mightily by God as he steps off of the ark. Adam, excuse me, Noah falls into sin again. He is not the promised one who will bring relief to humanity. But we read about the one who is. We read the genealogy of Jesus Christ that said he was the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And generation after generation of the godly line shared in the hope of Enoch and shared in the hope of Seth and shared in the hope of Lamech that there would be a son, there would be one that would come that would crush the head of the serpent and bring relief from the effects of the curse of sin and through many generations God kept his promise through this godly line there came one who himself was God in the flesh to redeem us from a world torn by the effects of sin and his name is Jesus Christ and so dear Christian we have hope for deliverance from the effects of the fall of in Christ who is the better Noah He is the better Adam. He is the better Enoch. And he is the better Noah. For where Noah failed to bring relief from the effects of the curse of sin, Jesus Christ succeeds. He brings deliverance. He brings hope. He brings salvation. And he promised in his uh, his leaving that he will come again and he will renew all things. He will gather us to himself. And on the last day, the world will be purged of the iniquity and the curse will be no more. And there will be no more tears there. And there will be no more evil there. Jesus Christ will come again and deliver us from the effects of the fall in Christ. And He will make a new heaven and a new earth. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Dear Christian, in a few moments as we come to the Lord's Supper, that's what we're celebrating. We reflect on the death of Christ. And we reflect on our personal relationship with Him and the salvation that He has worked in our hearts. But as we take of the cup and as we take of the bread, we are declaring the Lord's death until He comes. As we partake of the cup, we remember that Jesus Christ is coming again for us. And when He comes again, He will make all things right. And He will make all things new. And He will bring relief from the effects of the brokenness that we experience in this life. Our broken relationships, our broken friendships, our our broken everything, our broken lives will be put back together and restored by the Lord Jesus Christ as He redeems this earth and reigns over it for all eternity. But dear friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ in that way, you've not seen Him as the Son of Adam, the Son of God, uh, the the God-man who has come in the flesh to die on the cross for you, I would point you this morning to Lamech's hope. As you think about the brokenness that this life brings, as you experience the passing of loved ones, as you experience sickness, as you experience uh, the curse of work and the curse of the ground, as you experience all of the effects of the fall, Lamech's hope for relief was not fulfilled in his son, but only through Jesus, the descendant of him. And so we look to Christ for hope. And I urge you to look to Christ for hope, look to Christ, the true Redeemer, who come through this line of Noah. He is the better Adam, who bears the image of God in perfection. He is the perfect Enoch, who walked with God all the days of his life. And he is the better Noah, who brings relief from the fall and from sin. And it is appointed one day for you to die. 
and you will stand before him in judgment. As it is written in Hebrews, it is appointed a time for all men to die once, and after this, the judgment. But your hope is not in the works of your hands. Adam tried to sew fig leaves together to cover his own iniquity, and he come up short. So he put his faith and trust in God. He put his faith in Jesus Christ. Enoch walked with God not to save himself, but walked with God because of his faith that God would save him. Noah recognized that he was not the one to bring deliverance and bring relief, but he looked to another. He looked to one of his offspring who would bring relief from the curse of sin. And so like Adam, you cannot sew fig leaves together and cover your iniquity. Like Enoch, you cannot walk with God and somehow merit your salvation. And like Noah, you cannot bring relief to the fall and brokenness of this world by your own hands. You must look to another. You must look to Christ, the better Adam. You must look to Christ, the better Enoch. And you must look to Christ, the better Noah. And He will save you. Through Him, the image of God will be restored in you. Through Him, you will find strength to walk near to God. Through Him, you will find deliverance from the sting of death. And through Him, you will find relief from the brokenness of this world. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and look to Christ for your salvation. Well, dear church, we have seen now in this passage that though the curse of sin and its effects are impacting all of humanity, though death has entered the world and the curse is running rampant, God is preserving a people for Himself. There is a godly line that calls upon the name of the Lord, and that is you and I. We have by faith been grafted into this line. We have been made, uh, we have been made descendants of Seth, descendants of Abraham, and sons and daughters of the risen Christ. And as the people of God, we display the image of God, striving to be like Him who is the perfect image of God. By faith, we walk by faith in Christ. And by faith, we hope for deliverance from the curse in Christ. The line of Seth, the promised seed, is a people that are marked by faith. And so we also must walk by faith. Let's go to Him in a word of prayer. 